From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. On the first day I got there and Aaron said, okay, let's rehearse this scene. And these guys did it so perfectly that I felt I was just watching them in a Broadway production that had been on for years. But, and then I forgot, oh, oh my God, I'm playing Abby Hoffman. I'm actually in the cast. What am I, you know, I better get its character. So yes, most of that movie, I was terrified that somebody would realize that I did not have the technique that they do. Sasha Baron Cohen is an accomplished, award-winning actor, having just landed another Golden Globe Award for playing the lead character in Borat's subsequent movie film. But he admits to nevertheless feeling intimidated when he arrived on set for the trial of the Chicago 7. I'm Janelle Riley. On this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talked to Sasha Baron Cohen about making Borat's subsequent movie film and why he wanted to make that film before the 2020 election. Also in this episode, we speak to a fellow Golden Globe winner, Kemp Powers, the co-director of Pixar's animated Soul and writer of One Night in Miami. But first, on the awards circuit roundtable, we recap the Golden Globes, and yes, we might sound a bit exhausted. It's all on the latest edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Award Circuit. I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor here at Variety. Joined today with Janelle Riley. Hey, how's it going, people? Hey, Jazz Tanke. Hey! <laughs> Thought we were doing our radio voices. And Michael Schneider. Hey, good afternoon, Clayton Davis. Yeah, all uh, you cool cats and kittens. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> so, if we sound a little <laughs> off today, <laughs> mere hours from I the think Golden we sound Globes. great. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. We are caffeinated and great. I only want to be this version of myself always. <laughs> oh, dear Jesus. So that was a night. That was a thing that happened. Coming off the Golden Globe Awards, it was nice to have a award show back on, even if it was a little bumpy. Yeah. Uh, can, we, can we start here? I think this is a good place to start before we get into winners, obviously. But I think the good thing to say is there, there were good, there was good, in, there were pros and cons, obviously, right? Yeah. But I think one of the good things that we spoke about in the video, obviously, if you go to the Variety Awards or your video, um, was that Tina and Amy felt together, even though they weren't. Yeah, it was impressive. Yes. It worked the best in the monologue. As we got to the Norman Lear part, it got weird. And then, yeah. there, and then the producers just choosing to do candid shots of them standing there just didn't, didn't do any favors for anyone. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that would have been a fun idea if they had sort of like let them sort of, you know, give them more direction on communicating. It would have been fun to be, see like, you know, Sudeikis saying to, uh, you know, one of his fellow nominees, hey, yeah. how's it going? You know, if we'd seen more of that, that would have been cool. Yeah, because there's literally a shot of Tina Fey standing and she looks depressed. Like she looked <laughs> so sad. I was like, guys, get off of her. Like she doesn't need to be on camera right now. Just keeps, it was, actually it was during the Jane Fonda speech. They did a cut to her there. And that's when she looked like she just, like she was standing there. Uh, well, J- Jane Fonda, I mean, all the goals. Oh, I mean, oh, she's so wonderful. What a speech. And listen to our bonus podcast last week to hear more from her exactly. and Norman Lair. Yeah, yeah. Is she, is she just as great? Like, She's uh, pretty she great. Was. I mean, she she didn't even realize she, how what a big flex it was to say that she once had so many awards it broke a shelf. 
<laughs> she was just like, yeah, you know, this funny thing happened. And I was like, that is a flex and you don't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> um, how old is she now? Because actually, actually, my wife, Jessica, asked how old she was. And I did. I was like 80, I think. But I think I was lying. Oh, Clayton, we never discuss a woman's age here. Oh, that's true. But like, I, I was because <laughs> we, we were going through like her career and I was like, I, I was I was like, yeah, she should be up there now. She still just looks fantastic. She is 83. 83? She she's 83. Wow. And who said that she has the ass of a 10-year-old boy? Was that Amy oh, who said what? that? Didn't <laughs> someone that? say that? Oh no, someone said <laughs> it about podcast? somebody. No, 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 no. On the Golden Globes oh. last night. <laughs> yeah. Oh <dear> Jesus. <laughs> I was like trying to get me and Michael fired. I'm like, what are you doing? HR is I know. Phone. I was like, I did not say this. All right, maybe we should edit that part out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, oh, did I okay. did I make that up or didn't somebody say that? I, I mean so I mean it sounds like something someone would say in the it was, real world. Yeah, so. It was one of the hosts. Yeah. Oh, I found it. Yeah. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes as we're covering these award shows, sometimes you have to dip in and out and you don't listen to everything that they're saying. So I may have missed that line. It was uh Faye introduced Jane Fonda and said she had the ass of a twenty a twenty year old boy. Sorry, I aged her down even more. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. At least now, now it's legal. <laughs> At least yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little more appropriate. That's true. I just stopped myself from saying something completely inappropriate. No, good, good. We're, we're all gonna we're gonna hold all we can today. Yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. So let, let, let's talk about uh, some of the big winners of of the, of the evening. Uh, let's start on TV because that's where my predictions were the worst. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always tough to, you know, predict. I mean, the good news, Queen's Gambit, we we knew that was going to be, uh, you know, out there in front and, and Anya Taylor-Joy, so got that right. Crown, we knew the crown was going to... Wow, but how did we expect that well? When was the last time a show swept like that at the Globes? Oh, that's a... That is a good question. I'll look it up while question. you guys are talking about it. But uh, I, I don't know if it's ever happened before, honestly. I mean, it won, it won four, right? It was four. Yeah, most, most of most of any program uh, in the evening. So and, uh, you know, Emma Corwin and uh, Josh O'Connor, of course, uh, leading the charge uh, as Charles and Di. Uh, you know, I thought Olivia Coleman was going to win for Best Actress only because that's the pattern. Olivia Coleman generally wins almost everything that she's ever nominated for. But she looked so thrilled to not have won. She was so happy for Emma Cole. I want was- someone to be just as happy for me doing something as she was looking at her co-star. That yeah, it was- must be when whenever you've you've already ha- you've got all the awards, it, it's sort of like you don't need them anymore. You don't need that Jane Fonda shelf collapsing on you. So you're, <laughs> that's where I'm sure it's probably you're fine with the uh, spreading. Yeah, spreading the Olivia's reaching bit. reaching structural capacity at this point. She can she can ease off. Yeah, yeah. She'll break another shelf if she gets any more awards. And and they sort of split their love for uh, Schitt's Creek and, and Ted Lasso. So Sudeikis got his actor nod. Uh, show still went to Schitt's Creek, which, you know, I get it. Last chance to, to honor that show. And they just got in in the nick of time because they'd never even nominated anything from Schitt's Creek before at the Globe. That's true, so, yeah. So at least they, they get some bragging rights that they honored the show at the last minute in Catherine O'Hara, who deserves every award that is ever offered to her. So I'm glad they <laughs> managed to get that in nick of time. Unfortunately, it didn't mean anything for Eugene Levy, but, you know, no, he's, well, he's but a Dan producer. Walked on, away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he and Dan are producers, uh, so, so they still got awards. So everyone ends up happy. Everyone's a winner. But then we got that great Don Cheadle moment, and that's what happened. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was epic. 
Yes, yes. My friend asked if, if he knew he was on camera, and I was like, yeah, I, I think so. I don't think so. he did, no. no he, you don't he, think he, he did? You think he no, was joking? No, th- I think he did. I think he did. He knew what he was doing. He uh, knew he, okay. was having a, he was having a laugh. That's a very, and he's like, Don Cheadle. He can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very Don Cheadle sort of, like, let's, let's have some fun with this and, and you know, poke, poke my fellow nominee a, a little bit. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> can I just say I love Jason's hoodie? I just loved the attire. Oh, that, that was the talk of Twitter. Oh my God, it was just hoodie this, hoodie that, hoodie, hoodie, hoodie. It was, he yeah. seemed like Jason Sudeikis seemed like the only person surprised that Jason Sudeikis won. Everybody was like, yep, yep, that's what we expected. And he just looked yeah. stunned. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, well, as yeah our, he probably thought it was going to be Shit's Creek. Our social media editor, Meg, Meg Zukin, uh, noted she, she, she's kind of into the sad dad vibes. And he definitely had a lot of... Sad dad vibes oh on, on the show. He's doing just fine. <laughs> Nobody needs to feel bad for Jason Sudeikis. All right. And shout out to Meg for her incredible work that she yeah. does. So, but yeah, so comfy. Uh, co- I, I think the, the comfortable nominees and winners won the night. Uh, J- uh, Jodie Foster, obviously, sitting there in her PJs with her wife and her dog. And the dog had the matching scarf. I mean, she... Ugh, every she, goals. She was winning the Globes as well. Um, yeah, that was hashtag goals. Can I ask a question about uh, John Boyega and Small Axe? So M- Emmy-wise, like now as we look forward at the correlation between Globes and Emmys, which doesn't usually go well, <laughs> typically, do you think Boyega would be better suited for a lead or supporting campaign? And what do they do? Because it's, it's going to compete as one collective thing. So it'll be miniseries, right? Limited yeah, series. But he, but he's the lead of his story. So then it becomes like very awkward. It's a tough one because that limited category is already jam packed, and now they're they're you know squeezing the anthologies in there, and 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 you know some some yeah you know, the the streamers are starting to get wise, and they're adding some movies into the mix as well, just because they can. So so that is. Probably the the crowdest field are, are all those limited spaces. So ha- Hamilton will be there too, right? Or in that, among that uh, mix? No, ha- Hamilton will be in a, a variety special, ah. pre recorded. So, so where will the actors can, uh, compete? Uh, the actors, then I believe, will be eligible for for those mm, actors. Yeah. So there's gonna be there's gonna be some yeah there's gonna be a bloodbath. Yeah, Mike, yeah. this is a little off topic, but what are your feelings on nominating people in sketch shows in like supporting actor and actress categories? Because um, I've talked to some people in those categories who lost over the years to Kate McKinnon or Alec Baldwin, and they really felt it should be a different category. Um, I mean, I think acting, I mean, it's still all acting, right? It's still comedic acting. It's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, no different than say in in you know primetime sketch show um like S, you know SNL is you know in late night but it sort of acts like a primetime show and and you know it's it's still comedic acting it's would, would you argue though that then maybe it should SNL should just compete in comedy series then instead of being maybe that's the separation that people are yeah that's where it gets yeah it gets really dicey right because it's the same but it's not the same so we've stumped schneider today yeah, you, <laughs> i mean you can't and the problem is there aren't many sketch shows and and that's yeah. that's that's the heart of the the whole debate over merging uh you know sketch and, and talk is that you know there aren't many sketch shows so you got to st- stick sketch somewhere maybe you should stick sketch with comedy as opposed to talk but... say stick sketch 10 more times real fast <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> I'm too tired. 
<laughs> I know, you poor man. Um, all right, so then that's TV and then film. Yeah, go um, film. Hey, you know, I had to write the snubs and surprises, and I was like, oh, it's going to be so hard. There's never any surprises. And then Andre Day wins Best Actress uh-huh. in a Drama, and Jodie Foster wins Supporting Actress. And Rosamund Pike. Pike. Rosamund Pike. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, all deserving wins. I'm not criticizing the choices. If they were nominated, they obviously deserve to be there. What, but what, made, not you, what, the made, what made your mouth drop the most? I think Rosamund Pike because it was the first one. And because mm. I had, I was concerned Maria Bakalova, who we all know I'm a huge fan of. Um, if she didn't win, I thought it might go to Michelle Pfeiffer, which, you know, is great. She's great too. And so I was sort of prepared for that. But, um, Rosamund Pike surprised me and it, it was a pleasant surprise. She's really great in that movie. I think the surprising part was that the film just came out on Netflix a week ago, but yeah. That, that was, uh, something I, I, I wrote on, uh, on Variety was that all the, like so many late breakers. One, yes, yeah. Andrew, Daniel Kaluuya, Rosman, yeah. all February releases. Jody, yeah. Jody fe- February release. Like the the earliest release uh, acting winner was Ch- was Bor was, no Chadwick. No, no, it was Borat. Because so, Borat came in. I guess November. yeah, would have been so Sasha Baron Cohen. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's been very uh, it's been very interesting that way. Rosamund Pike definitely jaw dropping moment. But can I just say a shout out to Janelle's mom? Who knows how to spell Maria? <laughs> I want to give your mom a shout out, Janelle. She can spell Maria Bakalova, but she doesn't know Stephen Yun. She can't even learn <laughs> Stephen Yun's name. She just, I don't know if she has a mental block or what it is. And I'm starting to figure out, because my mom insists that she doesn't talk about him as much as she does. And I think she just forgets that she brings him up like three times a day. So I uh, I was I talk about Meg Zukin again, but it's going to be a Meg Zukin podcast. But I literally <laughs> had messaged her earlier today. I was like, Meg, this is going to sound like the oldest thing I've ever said, but what is Twitter Spaces? <laughs> and like, I, I wanted to know when do we get to that age that we are our parents and like we start saying, oh, that that, that tweeters, <laughs> like you know, yeah. love you moment from <laughs> Shit's Creek. Like, when do I start just saying stuff wrong and can't get it right? Yeah, embrace it. And she said, Clayton, you've been doing it all year. <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> um, Daniel Kaluuya was the only one I think I got right. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it was the first one of the night, so I was like, woo, I'm on a roll, one for one. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, just, just <laughs> downhill. It was, it was downhill really fast, <laughs> like, from the opening <laughs> Shots. Well, I also predicted Chloe, so uh, I, guess, I guess two out of 26. <laughs> that, that works. Oh, my God. See, I had her and then I changed her to sort. Who'd you him. change it to, Emerald? No, Fincher. Fincher. Oh, Fincher. Yeah, see, don't ever change your predictions. Just go with yeah, the gut and stick I, with I learned the gut. that the hard way every time. I had Kaluuya and I switched him to I switched it to Cohen. Just like you start getting like those like last minute jitters. Yeah. You get sucked into the bubble of like everybody's changing or somebody does their like last minute predictions. Like, okay, maybe I'm wrong, and then yeah, should have stuck with it. I am concerned that I may have hurt Promising Young Woman's chances by by doing my nails in the Promising Young Woman's style. And going style. all in on the predictions. I did. Although I, I hedged my bets at the last second and said Emerald would win screenplay but not director. Because originally when we spoke last week, I was like, everything. Yeah. It's going to take everything, people. You know, you know what? Also, just uh, looking at Promising Young Woman kind of moving forward. First of all, can I just say I felt bad for anyone who was in England yesterday? Because Carrie Mulligan, it was 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And she's got to do that for the next several weeks. You know, just. It's rough. Be, yeah, that's, that's got to be. It's, it's a rough life. 
as somebody who used to live in England and follow award season, it was tough because you get up as normal on a Sunday and then 2 a.m. you're still awake, you're watching the awards, you're watching the red carpet. It finishes at 5 a.m. If you have to work in three hours, you are caffeinated. So I feel so sorry for for all of them. I feel your pain, dear fellow Brits. <laughs> It'd be less agonizing if she won. Mm, yeah, probably. Well, that's what next Sunday's for, the Critics <laughs> Awards. Next Sunday? What's uh, next? Oh, nominations? Critics Choice. Critics Choice, no, Critics Choice oh, is Critics next Choice. Sunday. Actually, that brings us to the last topic. Uh, Friday, Oscar nomination voting opens. So tomorrow, because you're listening to this on Thursday, because you always come right here on Thursdays to make sure you listen to Variety Award Circuit right when it drops. First thing. Yeah, first thing of your day. So I want to give us an opportunity, one or two movies, because t- all the voters that are listening to, they, they are here on Thursdays as well. What do you want them to watch that they, do you feel like they just maybe haven't yet that they should consider as voting opens? Tom and Jerry? No. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go there. Yes, Michael Schneider. I would just, if, if you haven't already seen Minari, um, really consider actors in all the categories, including Best Actress for Yeti Han and Supporting Actor for Alan S. Kim and even Supporting Actor for Will Patton. I think the whole cast is wonderful. Um, don't uh, don't fall into this trap of some people who say that Borat isn't an awards film. It's one of the best movies of the year. You know, you talk about important movies. It literally um, is just because it's incredibly funny and well done doesn't mean that it's also not important. Um, and both those performances are, are stunning. I joke that, you know, I didn't really want it to get SAG Ensemble because that might mean that Rudy Giuliani would get like a award or certificate <laughs> but, but now going forward yeah i i would be so happy if hey this week's guest sasha baron cohen was a double nominee and in fact the when i spoke to sasha baron cohen for this podcast it was right after he had just received all the nominations for sag and golden globe it was you know before he won two golden globes but and it, it was it was very funny because even he was you know sort of stunned yeah, this is actually a nice uh, globy episode because we've got Sasha and we've got uh, Kemp Powers. Uh, oh! Do you have a last recommendation, Jazz? I would say The Father. I know a lot of people oh, so who good. I've recommended this film to. It's a good recommendation. They, they hesitate and then they watch it and they're like, it's good. Anthony Hopkins gives one of the best performances of his career next to Silence of the Lambs. Olivia Colman is phenomenal. That whole production design, the way they deal with that topic is gorgeous and watch pieces of woman. I love that film. Vanessa Kirby and Ellen Burstyn are phenomenal. So those are my two. Please. If you haven't seen them films, go watch them. Be- being selfish. I wanted to mention land as well. Cause I think Why Robin Wright, because I already said two, but then I, I was thinking of one a little more under the radar that maybe people haven't seen yet. You feel like you're not listening, you say it. (laughs) I shout it. Robin Wright, never been nominated for an Academy Award. Wonderful job as director. Stunning job as an actor. And Damien Bashir is also a really, really lovely performance. Well, at the time you're listening to this, I think probably 15 minutes before or after this drops, my personal Oscar ballot will be on Variety, so you can see all my personal choices there. But I will say uh, 40-year-old version Rada Blank, Rada, Radha Blank, sorry, uh, still great. Palm Springs, still great. 
Uh, Farewell Amour. I don't think any, anyone's seen oh, it. Oh, such a good movie. Jamie Lawson. She's, She's going to be such a huge star in a yeah, couple years. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big fan. You know, I saw one of the later films I saw, and I have fallen in love with it. It didn't make my top ten, but it's... It, I, Hillbilly Elegy? Oh, that was me who saw yeah, it late right, and you. liked it. Yes. Uh, St. Francis. I caught it, like, uh, at the end of the year. Kelly O'Sullivan's uh, beautiful, beautiful movies. Really, really well done. Um, and Judas and the Black Messiah. I feel like I need to say that because... I was just going to mention that because I feel like I was just speaking to somebody about how, you know, obviously Daniel Kaluuya won the Globe. He's nominated for a SAG. I think that's going to have a stronger showing at Oscars. I think Dominique Fishback might get in. I think Shaka King as director might get in. I think, you know, it's it's a later arrival and it might, I don't want to say surprise because it shouldn't be a surprise. I, I, I think it'll have a stronger showing as the season goes on. Dominique Fishback is incredible. She Wonderful. is somebody to watch out for. She's going to be huge. Oh, God, my computer's about to die. But that's well, our I cue think then. that is our cue. So Sasha Baron Cohen, Kemp Powers, good episode. We'll see you next week. Bye. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Janelle Riley. Sasha Baron Cohen is having a good week. The star of both The Trial of the Chicago 7 and Borat's subsequent movie film went into the Golden Globe Awards on Sunday night with acting noms for both films and a nod for Borat for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. He walked away with two trophies, well, technically they're being sent to him, for his work on Borat, and he's nominated for two SAG Awards for Chicago 7, both in the supporting category for portraying Abby Hoffman and for his work in the ensemble. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. I spoke to Cohen in February when he was coming off a 48-hour period where he had just landed all the accolades and was still processing it. I began by asking him if the awards recognition was old hat by now. I've got to say, when we did Borat, you know, we had a couple of Golden Globe nominations. I won one. We got nominated for an Oscar. And then we shot Bruno. And it was really interesting. All the crew were, I remember, you know, the, he was like, you know, just come here. He was like, hold on. There's, you know, the Oscars. And they all believed that somehow, because we'd had the luck of the first one, they thought, oh, we're going to have it in the second one. Um, and obviously Bruno was a much more dangerous movie than Borat. And so, yeah, many on the crew were completely convinced that this was an Oscar movie. And it didn't get one award anywhere, not even a nomination for anything. Um, but yes, that's the, uh, so I'm aware at how rare these things are. And listen, the HFPA have been incredible to me over the years and particularly the last few years. So, um, and SAG. Yeah, I mean, I was really happy about SAG because I've had, for Who is America, my performances weren't eligible as acting performances. 
So they said, you know, you can't compete. We can't submit you. And I go, well, there must be some category I could be submitted in. Because, you know, you cover all forms of acting. Stunts, there's no. a stunt category. Yeah, exactly. So they said, no. And I said, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm not actually acting? Because, you know, there's just six different characters. So, yeah, I'm really, really happy to have my peers, you know, nominate me. That's really lovely with such, you know, brilliant array of people. So, And with the... The, the ensemble of the trial of the Chicago seven. I mean, the individual ensemble is nice, but to be there with these people that you made this movie with the, this amazing movie great. with like, that's gotta be the greatest. Yes. I mean, I sent them all an email today saying that it's slightly ironic that I should be chosen for best supporting. Cause I, I believe that I'm the eighth best actor there. So, and that's being generous. I, I just think they've, you know, they were so, many of the world's best actors in that cast. I mean, you had Frank Langella and, you know, Eddie Redmayne and, you know, the whole cast is unbelievable. You know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Alex Sharp and Jeremy Strong, I mean, is so bloody talented um, and works so hard that, yeah... It, they were they were an intimidating cast because I read on the first day I got there and Aaron said okay let's rehearse this scene and these guys did it so perfectly that I felt I was just watching them in a Broadway production that had been on for years but and then I forgot oh oh my god I'm playing Abby Hoffman I'm actually in the cast what am I you know I better get into character um, so yes most of that movie I was terrified that somebody would realize that I did not have the technique that they do wait were you more terrified doing trial of the Chicago 7 or singing Wuhan flu at a rally where people wanted to kill you uh Wuhan flu I was pretty (laughs) sure that yeah I mean listen I was terrified that I was going to be uncovered in uh, Chicago 7 as not being a good enough actor and would be fired uh with Wuhan flu I was scared that I was I was worried that I was going to get a shot. Okay, that's probably worse. I'll Actually, Aaron Sorkin's pretty. Aaron Sorkin's pretty, you know, intimidating. So, <laughs> you know, it's a close call. Which one's more terrifying? I know that this has been pointed out before, but the fact that you would have these two movies that, on the surface, seem so different but actually parallel each other in a lot of like unique ways. I mean. You're the perfect actor to play Abby Hoffman because your art has been political for so many years. Um, did you know from the start, like, that you wanted that role? That we, I, I know that you had read up on him in college. Did you have to convince anybody that you were the guy for this part? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I heard about Abby Hoffman first when I was an uh, undergraduate in Cambridge many years ago, and I was doing a thesis on... Jews in the civil rights movement from 1960 to 1967. And he was a bunch, he was one of many Jewish sort of left-wing students who went down south to fight for racial equality. Two of them got murdered, uh, Schwerner and Goodman, in a car with uh, Cheney. That became a famous story with Mississippi burning. 
Um, that group of radical left-wing Jews then formed the basis for the anti-Vietnam War movement. So I knew about Abby Hoffman, you know, from the age of 20. I kind of admired him. And when I heard they were going to make Chicago 7, the director at the time was Steven Spielberg. I called him up, which is a slightly cheeky thing to do. <laughs> I just made Borat. And I'd met him on the awards circuit, basically. He was at the Globes. I met him at... He was the guy who came up to me at the AFI and it's a really nice event because you, you're sitting at a table and you're with these, you know, there are 10 films that are chosen. And he came up to me and I was like, oh my God, that's Steven Spielberg. And he said, what I love about Borat is that structurally it's a classic movie. Wow. You know, it has classic structure. And so we... I took the liberty of calling him up when he was going to make Chicago 7 and said, I really want to play Abby Hoffman. Um, at the time, Aaron Sorkin was the writer. And we had, yeah, you know, Heath Ledger and Philip Seymour Hoffman were also in the cast. Wow. It was quite a long process to get the job because he said, you know, I'm worried. How do I know you can actually do this accent? It's really specific. And... So he put me with this brilliant dialect coach and every night for two weeks, we recorded the same speech twice. Once at the beginning of the night, once at the end of the night. And so I had about um, 20 recordings of this particular speech. And after two weeks, he said, I want to have that, you know, you're recording the speech at my house at nine o'clock in the morning and we'll meet in my mum's place, the Milky Way for lunch. So I had my assistant uh, just put down, I said, you know, take number 19 is perfect. Use that. And uh, I met up with Stephen the next day for lunch. And he goes, all right, Sasha goes, I've got to be honest, right? He goes, I got the CD. Thank you. He goes, in full honesty, the first 10 takes were pretty bad. I was like, what? He goes, you know, by take 12, you're getting good, 15, really close. And by 19, you had completely nailed it. And <laughs> so he had spent about an hour of listening to me do this speech. At the beginning, you know, my American accent and my you know, version of Abby Hoffman, which is a really complex accent because he's, he's from Boston, but then it's got hints of Berkeley and Brandeis. And also his, you know, his voice jumps an octave when he gets excited. It, the rhythm of it completely changes depending on whether he's giving a speech or whether it's in private because he's very, very influenced by Lenny Bruce, the stand-up. Right. And so he kind of studied Lenny Bruce because he realized that if he wanted to convert these hippies to become activists, he'd have to be funny and have to become one of them. So he was like a really smart, interesting character. So yeah, it, uh, that process with Spielberg was a challenge because those first few takes were abysmal. I know that things obviously worked out for you and everything worked out in the end, but when Spielberg made the choice not to go forward with the movie and you'd put this work into it, did, did you think that was it? Did you think it would ever come back around? Or did you sort of have faith that you were meant to play this guy? I was determined to play it. I didn't know whether it would ever happen. And over the years, different directors latched onto the project. 
And again, you know, I'd have to try and re-engage. Eventually, Aaron was the director, which was really exciting. And I asked whether I could play Abby again. And unbelievably, even though it was 13 years on, uh, Aaron said yes. And, uh, you know, he could have easily said no and gone for somebody who was 35 and half a foot shorter than me, like the real Abby Hoffman was. So, um, and even when we would, you know, the movie was about to happen, then it's not going to, even under Aaron, and then it ran out of money. Suddenly it was a million dollars short. I was like, what? We can't find a million dollars with this cast, with Aaron Sorkin directing Mark Platt, Oscar winning Mark Platt is producing this. We're not going to make this movie because no one will put up a million dollars. And I think that was an indication at that time you know, people talk about the influence of Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu. You know, at that time, it was a financial risk, a real financial risk to make a movie like Chicago 7 because mm-hmm. you, you knew that it could make $7 million at the box office. You know, your only chance really of it being a hit would be to get Oscar nominations and then hope that people would see it in the run-up to the Oscars and afterwards and the beauty of it going on netflix was that suddenly millions of people around the world saw this great story and you know it's actually quite inspiring because you think oh this movie being a hit and obviously doing so well so far in the nominations means that companies like netflix and amazon and hulu are going to make more of these kind of movies which is which is great for us at the time, I would have been heartbroken thinking this movie wasn't going to happen with Steven Spielberg. And I don't know if you've just always, you know, been able to have this this philosophy to just keep going and it will happen. Or, you know, if it was just if it was just in this particular case, you believed it would happen. I mean, I didn't necessarily believe that it would happen. I just felt every time it got reincarnated, I tried to convince whoever was doing it to cast me. And obviously I got older and older uh, and taller and taller because when I was with Spielberg, <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't gone through puberty. So actually I was Abby Hoffman's height. By the time Aaron Sorkin cast me, I was six foot three. Wow. And um, so I was very, very lucky because I'd grown seven inches during that time. <laughs> You know, I always think because Abby Hoffman, he was such a character, but he also, he, he knew the value of a good performance. It, do you think he would like this movie and like this portrayal? I, I think he would love it, but I'm curious if you ever thought about that. Uh, d- no, listen, when you're playing a real person, I've only done it twice, twice, uh, twice. It'd <laughs> be a uh, middle English version of a uh, fool or something, but... I've only done it once. One was in The Spy, uh, where I was playing an Israeli real-life Mossad spy called Ellie Cohen, and this was the second one. And you have an obligation because their family is still alive, and it was really rewarding to have actually Abby's nephew speak up and say that he felt he could see his uncle on screen. Wow. Um, Also because he was such an inspirational character, Abby, and... As part of the research, I just read and watched anything that was available. You know, 
went down and went to archives and got stuff that hadn't been released. And the more I read, the more I heard, it's just hard not to be completely inspired by this guy who's firstly so intelligent. He's so witty and funny, so charming, has such incredible charisma and is ultimately so courageous that he's ready to risk his life to fight injustice. And that's, I remember the first time I saw the clip of him and Aaron reproduced that, it was interesting. That was the one thing that Aaron was, said, okay, I want to do this as is. It was the press conference where they say, what's your price, Abby? What would you give? And he goes, my life. Mm. And I, that almost made me cry because I was like, okay, this seemingly clownish buffoon is actually ready to die to stop the war or to end racism. And that's, that's the thing throughout my life that has made me sort of tear up is when I see someone on the news or in a film just be courageous, that's, that's inspirational. Well, I mean, you have to know better than anyone that, you know, the people who are the best clowns, you know, often still waters run the deepest. Well, maybe not still waters, but, you know, they're often the ones who are being the most subversive. Yes. I mean, Abby to me was in the tradition of the type of theater called Buffon, um, which is, I studied under the great clown teacher, Philippe Gaulier. Um, but the Buffon, you know, the idea was to, they were outcasts of society in the medieval ages. And once a year, they were allowed into the towns and villages. They could put on these Buffon plays that, you know, you know some of these Buffons, they had uh, natural deformities or they were heretic priests or they were gay, or they were, they were the outcasts of society, and they would ridicule the establishment in order to undermine it. So they were these kind of very powerful plays that were deeply satirical, quite nasty often. Uh, but Abby really understood the power of humor and comedy to expose the ills of society and humble the powerful. Um, it's like he used to say, sacred cows make the tastiest hamburgers. <laughs> he, he realized if he could get people to laugh, he could gain attention and that could recruit more people to the cause. You know, thinking back, it, it never occurred to me, but why wasn't Bruno an Oscar film? I thought it was just as good as Borat's. I actually, I have a very soft spot for Bruno because I think he's, he's, he's much sweeter, at least uh, in those first films than Borat was. And, you know, I mean, I would have voted Harrison Ford Best Supporting Actor um, uh, for his wonderful turn in that, which I believed was real. <laughs> oh, well, I, I will tell you this. That was the only bit of the movie that was not real. You're Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford was the only person in on it. That's so amazing. Had, Pamela Anderson was in on it on the first one. Right. No one was in on it this time. Uh, but Harrison Ford was the only one. That is, then he really deserves some awards for his acting. Because I was like worried about you. He, was, he seems so angry. Ford, oh, he's great. He, yeah, I remember he turned up that night. We were going to shoot with him outside a restaurant. And... He said, all right, you know, uh, great, let's go. And I go, hold on, you don't, he goes, what's the matter? I go, you don't look enough like Harrison Ford. <laughs> he goes, what are you talking about? I am Harrison Ford. I go, you're wearing glasses and this. 
I go, what are you, you're wearing like a sweatshirt? I go, you don't look like Harrison Ford. The audience need to understand immediately you're Harrison Ford. And in the end, all credit to him, he took the shirt off the writer. The writer took the shirt off his own back and gave it to Harrison Ford. He wore it, took his glasses off when we shot the scene. Wow. Literally gave him the shirt off his back. Yes, exactly. And I love that you were basically trying to cast a Harrison Ford type because Harrison Ford. (laughs) Harrison Ford would have to be more Harrison Ford, you know. (laughs) Speaking of, that's what I really wanted to talk about was the female writers that you brought on to Borat. Because obviously this movie, it's it's the feminist manifesto of the year, in my opinion. Um, I mean, not just my opinion. Other people have pointed that out. And you've created this like amazing heroine with your daughter, Tuta. Um, did these writers work on the first film or did you bring them specifically in? Uh, and it, what, was it sort of to get that perspective and also obviously just cause they're amazing writers. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, a conscious effort to bring in the best comedy writers for this specific job. So we were very, very lucky uh, we had Nina Pedrad came in. She's an Iranian comedy writer. And she was just crucial in coming up with the story because the one big thing she told us, you know, was that many women, that girls that she knew who were like Tuta in a way, loved and adored their dads. They weren't mm. aware of the psychological abuse or the fact that the society was misogynistic. Um, we had Erica Rivanoia, who, you know, had done, you know, Last Man on Earth and uh, South Park and, you know, just sort of brilliant. And then we had this new stand-up called Jenna Friedman, who's um, fierce, fiercely political and came up with some of the, the biggest most outrageous concepts in the movie that were on that theme, the Pregnancy Crisis Center and the menstruation dance. And basically, you know, we realized that this was, you know, for this to be a movie about Borat and his daughter, Borat is in a way the biggest misogynist ever and he had to become a feminist in order to give up his life and sacrifice his life for her daughter to realize her own, her own one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we wanted to comment on the fact that throughout history and in many countries, girls are essentially seen as their father's property until the day they become their husband's property. And that's coexisting at a time where women in much of the Western world are you know being educated as much as men where they're you know there's you know it's inconceivable for some of those women in third world countries that they could be the head of state you know they're head of a country like germany or the head of the international monetary fund um and so we were you know we wanted to make this movie to you know tackle that issue of the patriarchy we knew that we were a bunch of guys and so, yeah, we got in these three brilliant women because there was no way that we were going to be able to write it well for a female character and to explore these issues. And so there was, you know, we would never have done, have had the courage 
to do a scene that was about menstruation, you know, <laughs> and we needed, you know, these brilliant three brilliant writers were like, no, this is what we need to be saying. This is a taboo. Why on earth should women feel embarrassed about something that's completely natural? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same with the Pregnancy Crisis Center. This movie was about discussing the theory of do women have the right to choose? Obviously, we take that for granted. But we wanted to show that in some parts of America, some states, women have the same rights to do with what their body is as you have in certain third world countries. So these were, you know, the pregnancy crisis center scene where she swallowed the baby. And it's obviously a farcical scene, but the satire of it is that these are clinics and there are more clinics like that than there are uh, planned parenthoods. So their aim is to convince women who've decided what to do with their body to change their mind, to have the children, and they're often connected with these adoption agencies where they adopt these unwanted oh. children. It's really cynical. It's really oh, dark. Wow. And we, wanted to, we wanted to push the theory and see what would happen at one of these clinics if they were presented with a father who'd had impregnated his underage daughter. That's the worst. What's the worst? We wanted to push their theory to the limit. Okay, you don't believe in abortion, but do you not believe in it? Surely you believe in it if it's incest and rape. And the answer was no. They didn't believe in it, even in that case. Mm-hmm. The man said it's God's will. So, you know, we we're trying to be really funny, but we wanted to stay on that theme of the misogyny that still exists. We were very aware that we were making this movie before the election, and it would come out before the election, and that women would be completely instrumental in terms of voting and particularly women of color. Yes. So it's no coincidence that we gave so much emphasis in the movie to the brilliant Janice, you know, who is the fairy godmother of the the movie. And she is, you know, there is a woman of color who transforms our lead actor and and changes the nature of the movie. And that's why we came back to her afterwards, you know, not because of her color, but she was incredible. She's amazing. Right. She's an angel. But we felt it was important that that would come from a woman of color. She helps Tutar see her own beauty. She helps her stand up for herself and find her strength and independence as a woman. She's also, because I called her up after the movie came out, she's completely respected by her community. And we said, how can we help you? And she said, the way you can help me is you can help my community. And, you know, she was helping people get fed who'd lost their homes and were suffering from COVID. You know, she was an incredibly altruistic woman. And that was one of the things that we wanted to show that, you know, the in the first movie, it was, it was often about showing this kind of dark underbelly uh, of American society and warning the audience to a degree if, if we don't keep this in check, it could um, become a dangerous political force. This new movie wasn't about exposing hate. It was about showing how hate, lies and conspiracies help this slide into authoritarianism and were undermining the very 
basis of American democracy. And with this, we wanted to kind of show that with Borat that maybe, just maybe, <clears throat> we can come together. You know, the real people in the first Borat sometimes appalled us, but many of the real people in this one inspired us. Oh, absolutely. Do you often have to make that call and sort of explain to people or, or you know, give them a heads up or is Janice a special case? It's pretty rare. Yeah. It's pretty rare. We did it with Judith, who was the Holocaust survivor, who oh, sadly didn't make it to see the movie come out. She was one of the only people we've ever explained the nature of the movie to afterwards. I mean, it wasn't me, it was the director. And she completely got it. Yeah. Um, because we felt she'd been through so much and she, we wanted her to be on site um, and realize that it was somebody trying to mock uh, Holocaust deniers. After a year like this, I mean, can you talk about what you're doing next? I don't know if it's a secret. I, I assume you're doing something or maybe you were taking a very well-deserved vacation. Um, I wish I could talk about what I'm doing next, but I don't have any plans. Okay. I must say, I'm pretty disorganized career-wise. You know, things, you know, I was busy the last four years and it was mainly down to Donald Trump. I was very, very angry with, um, his policies, the fact that he got elected, and that led to a pretty busy few years of who is America and Chicago 7 and this movie. And so, yeah, plan is to take a bit of a break now. Just because this has been such a big year for you, and it's also been a strange year with the lockdown, what, is, what has it been like to promote these movies, you know, in quarantine? Because I'm sure you're still getting responses from people. People are reaching out and, you know, probably on social media, letting you know how much they love it. But it's got to be different. Well, in terms of promotion, I must say it's much more enjoyable to <laughs> promote a movie virtually from your own house. Um, you know, anyone who makes a movie that the studio gets behind at some point spends three weeks on the road. And we used to do it with the movies. We used to travel to... 10, 15 countries. Sometimes we had one day, we were in three countries in one day. Um, now you can just do it in a series of Zooms. And I, I wonder when the pandemic ends, whether marketing departments and actors will really go back to that old version of going around the world. I don't know if it really made mm -hmm. a difference. I know, it, I'm very curious. And in terms of the response, listen, I miss hearing an audience laugh, <laughs> right? That's the reason fundamentally, you cannot forget the fact that I have a huge ego. And I love hearing people laugh at jokes that I've written and performed. So I love nothing more than hearing 300 people really laugh hard at something that I thought was funny. So I really miss that purely an sure. ego. This, uh, yeah, you know, that's why I became a comedian. I just love the sound of hearing people laugh at my jokes. You know, we're all, driven, we're all driven by ego, but particularly actors like me. Well, we have to get this vaccine out in time for Halloween because I need all the, the Borat costumes to come back, particularly the, the, uh, when he goes to the synagogue, that whole oh, ensemble. The, Jew, the Jewish costume. I wonder <laughs> whether we'll actually make that one, yeah. <laughs> let's, hope it's done. let's hope it's done by Halloween. That's, uh, that's what they're saying. And we have adults in charge now. So I'm feeling better about it. 
Yes. yes. <laughs> and again, largely thanks to you, whether you will accept the uh, the thanks or not. Um, no, that's very that's very kind. <laughs> Listen, I think you know the great thing was we managed to get Maria Bakalova to infiltrate Trump's inner circle, and you know it undermined the legitimacy of Rudy Giuliani, who at that point was fair seen with some respect. This was yeah. the Four Seasons thing yep. and the hair dye episode. But, you know, if you remember the last few weeks of the election, he was trying to paint uh, President Biden and his family as a crime family. And mm-hmm. the fact that the whenever he tried to do that, the image that was circulated was of him with his hand down his trousers <laughs> slightly undermined his credibility. So I was glad for that. Yes, thank you for starting that glorious unravel. And uh, finally, have you ever been asked to host Saturday Night Live? Because that seems like a no-brainer. You know what? I don't think I have been. I mean, I've done uh, I've done a couple of sketches there. I right. opened it the first four out. Um, welcome to Juilliard City. Um, but uh, no, I've never hosted it. That, well, okay. I mean, if you're interested, I'll I'll write a letter. <laughs> I'm sure we could get that campaign going. Okay, that just seems like a, a, a perfect okay. fit. Well, thank you, thank so you, Janelle. Thank you for your support all along the way. Of course, no, really it's been such a thrill. It. Such a thrill. That's Sasha Baron Cohen. Borat's subsequent movie film is streaming on Amazon Prime Video, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven is streaming on Netflix. Kemp Powers has had an incredible year. Coming off co-writing Pixar's animated feature Soul, which he co-directed with Pete Docter, Powers also adapted his own play One Night in Miami for debut feature director Regina King. He talked recently with Variety's Clayton Davis, and they discussed the process of bringing Kemp's own work to the big screen, along with being the first black director of a Pixar film. Clayton began by asking Powers how he has been holding up during this pandemic. I'm honestly at this place where it's like, I, I do not want to get COVID now at all times, you know, of all times to like get super sick. So we're, we're kind of doubling and tripling down here in this house. So, yeah. So I want to ask you like, you know, because I'm the film awards editor, I have to start here. Your, you know, first two scripts come out this year, you know, first two movies, your co-directorial debut at Pixar and it happens during the pandemic that you can't, you know, be, you wouldn't be out, you're not out there the way you would be under normal circumstances. Um, is that a little bit of just like serendipity? Like, God, like, of course, this would happen now, or is this kind of like, you know, how's it feel for you? The only time I was even a little bit kind of like, oh man, was when they canceled the Cannes Film Festival. Cause I'd never, I'd never been to Cannes and I was really, really like super excited to have a movie. It would it was soul was selected yeah. for Cannes. Um, to have a movie go in into Cannes. Um, of, of course, like, once it became obvious, you know, there was a film festivals because a lot of these, like, Venice and Cannes, like, I'd never been to them before. So I'm, I've always kind of been a person who followed film festivals and was always excited, excited about movies that were coming out of them. So I was really gassed to kind of be a part of that community. Um, but once the festivals kind of came and went um, and... 
I've honestly just felt kind of, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I feel honestly lucky to be perfectly honest. If we're being just a hundred, I wouldn't have been able to promote both movies at the same time anyway, going out in theaters. So in actuality, I've been able to talk a lot more and, and interact with people and have discussions about both movies Mm. in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had to do it in person, because there was a, there's a lot of overlap between the soul and one night in Miami promotion. So I kind of feel a little, and, and you know what, the movies are out into the, in the world and I don't have to really do anything except kind of live my life, which Hmm. is also great because I'm already back in the lab, you know, like I've been working on one movie for God, six months now. Oh yeah. And, and I'm, I just turned in a, a draft of a script on another one that I was, you know, hired to do about um, five months ago. So the, this mm. whole time I've been working. So all right, um, well, well, yeah, well yeah, you're, blow, you're blowing through so much so fast. Wait, hold on. This is like so such great. Well, first of all, glass half full, and you're a writer. Those things don't go together a lot sometimes because listen, I, I I'm a glass half full guy, and I always feel like I was a, I'm a rarity. In this space, because, you know, the tortured writer just like really just like mundane and and misanthrope and hates people, you know, just about their process, the tortured soul. Um, and you're not that, which is great. I'm, I'm very glad. I don't know. Is it because you have a background in journalism? Next person. But again, we're in the middle of a pandemic, man. So I feel, you know, lucky that, you know, yeah. neither, of, neither of my kids have gotten sick. I haven't gotten sick. No one in my immediate family has, you know, like I, I'm I'm just really counting my blessing blessings because I've had, you know, friends of friends who've who've lost their lives and and people who've gotten it, friends who've gotten it who are like still not really uh, like we They're still right. don't know the long-term effects of any of this. You know? And and I know a lot of people who've been unable to work, they've been out of work. I have friends who are on TV show who have TV shows. And you know how COVID has affected shooting, even in Hollywood. I kind of feel like I'm in a lucky spot, even within Hollywood, in that, you know, animation is something you can do remotely. And other stuff that's not animation is in the writing stage. I I don't know. I just I just kind of feel like someone's been looking out for for these projects in a way that also you have to understand we, we got them completed, like right under the wire. I mean, we wrap principal photography and one night in Miami, I think less than a week before they shut New Orleans down. Yeah. And we just had two days, two pickup days to shoot. But we didn't know when we were going to be able to do that. And when we ramped up to do those pickup days, man, I mean, it was hard. And we were, I think, one of the first sizable productions. It was scaled down, but it was still over 60 people. Yeah. Up here in L.A. and do COVID safe, you know, COVID protocol shooting. And that those two days were like, you're freaking out because you're like, man, if, if something goes wrong and we have to shut down, we will They're not. Just one thing to, yeah. and the whole house falls. And it's all done. And, you know, I'm, Regina's talked about it in interviews, but she actually had a false positive when we got COVID tested. So oh. we were kind of waiting on like it was so many things. Where we, just, we just got it done. You know, we, we, we just got the sound mix completed. Like I think it was a week and a half before Venice. So mm. in many ways, Venice was our test audience. Or like so really, that, that, that so when I so I was that first uh, wave. Yeah, so you that were was the first, first cut. No one had seen it. We were like, we don't even know what we have because really? we weren't able to. At least with Soul, we had done test screenings. We'd done audience previews. Like Soul, we had a good idea 
of audience reaction to it because we were able to do all that stuff before the pandemic. One night in Miami, now, other than a handful of friends who got links, no audience had seen it. And then it debuted in front of it. Like, that was the cut. The audience saw it at Venice. So that's why I'm feeling kind of glass half full because it feels like I've had a couple of, you know, it feels like miracles when, when you get the, when you're able to get these things done. Sure. Oh my God. Um, Oh, that's just, that's crazy. First of all, protect our queen at all times. I, like I, I will hold you responsible. Like the whole world would, would end. I would have to yeah, end it all. You know, she's made another movie since then. Cause after, right after we wrapped, she went and shot the harder they fall. Oh, so like they had to do that. You know, she had that production. So she's, she's working. She's going yeah, she's working. Yeah. Talk about this time. So with, uh, with soul in particular, you're the first, uh, black director of a Pixar film, uh, next to Pete doctor, um, who, you know, won two Oscars up until this point. Um, did you feel, uh, an amount of pressure, of taking that mantle because not only, you know, being next to P doctor, but also representing for, you know, the space. I mean, I feel that certain amount of pressure. I mean, look, first, I didn't know immediately that that was the case. Someone like had to tell me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because uh, that there's been a lot of that. It might've been me actually, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, like Regina didn't know she was the first black woman director at Venice until she saw it reported in an article. So you got to understand that when you're in the midst of doing these things, you're just like, you're, I'm excited to be a Pixar. I'm excited to be working alongside my favorite Pixar director, you know, who I think is a genius. So I'm just kind of in the moment and, and, and I feel the personal responsibility of trying to tell this story featuring a black character, which they never had before. I mean, that much I knew. And um, so I already felt a certain sense of, of responsibility um, in, in that regard, but I didn't really think about that right away because, you know, what does that mean? I guess in hindsight, you realize that, yeah, oh yeah, I was first because, you know, there's a certain amount of being first sucks because you, you know what I mean? Like it's uh, yeah. the success of how things went for me is actually not based on the success of soul. It's based on the success of like, what is the organization going to look like in the future? How, you know, how soon are there going to be more different voices like this? You know, like success is something that's going to be determined in the long term. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of Soul. It's interesting because Soul is so unusual in that Soul is not a black movie. It's about this universal idea that's told through the prism of a black man, you know, yeah. which is in many ways even harder, you know, because you're just like you want it to be a specific life and a specific like this specific hyper-specific prism, and we're using it to tell this story that's like a grand, you know, a very grand idea. So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the best way to, to put it, is that I felt the burden, but it was less about being the first and more just about, you know, I feel that burden whenever I'm going into an environment where we're not that well represented. Um, and, and I feel like I have a certain responsibility to, to, to like always put my best foot forward and speak up if there's something that I think is like a really red flag. When you're looking at uh, One Night in Miami, which I can only, I think I've heard you say this before, but I, if not, I'm putting words in your mouth, but that was your child that you then needed to kind of 
I don't say give away, but let someone else take care of. Uh, and you're also, you're adapting your own work, but now you have to make it cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, was there parts of the story, parts of the, of your play that you were like, you had to let go of that you were like on, on, on the stage, it works so well. Cinematically, it doesn't. Absolutely. Actually, pro- it's probably the most popular part of the stage play is not in the movie. And it's Sam, a recreation of Sam performing at the Harlem Square Club. Um, really? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, it's like a show-stopping part of the play because Sam's arc in the film is kind of condensed. The conversation in the play, Sam talks about the differences between performing for a black crowd and performing for a white crowd and introducing more of who he is into his music. It wasn't like he was just doing you send me and then we blinked and then a change is going to come was written. You know what I mean? And chain gang is a great example of that. That's a song that, that speaks to some social issues, but like, you know, by this night he's done, bring it on home to me. He's, he's created what is soul, you know? So the play kind of, goes through more of that journey. And at a certain point, Sam is recounting his performance at the Harlem Square Club and it turns into an actual performance. Um, And we show the performance and it's it's a great, really great part of the play that I loved, um, but I had to let go of for the film because it really didn't serve the story. While the themes of the play and the film are the same, uh, that moment and moments like that didn't serve the story of the film. So when, when you first, I, well, I guess walk, walk us through the moment, like Regina spoke about it because we had her as a guest as well about how she kind of found it. But when you wrote it as a play, when it was, when it was going to stage, did you ever envision that it was going to be cinematic? No, I wrote it as a play and to, to live and exist as a play. In fact, Keith Calder and Jess Calder, um, who are the producers alongside um, Jody Klein and Abco Films, they approached me about optioning the play when it ran in Los Angeles in 2013. And I basically told them like, I have zero interest in doing that. Like it's, it's I didn't say never going to happen, but I implied like that's never going to happen. This is a play. It's just going to live as a play. Now understand I was in a different place in 2013. I wasn't really a screenwriter yet. Um, so for me, optioning the play would have meant giving the play over to someone else to do whatever they want with, because that's what an option really is. I mean, you lose any, you know, they might consult you, but the author doesn't have any say over anything. Unless yeah. It's rare. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so I, I was like, oh, no, I'm really, I was very concerned about if it were made into a film, losing so many of the things that really made it special, which were the symbolism of these men in these conversations, which again, are conversations very specific to the black community. And I felt like, in making a film, that wouldn't be as much of a concern. The concern would be much more with like, are you kidding me? We got Muhammad Ali. And like, we've got these four guys in a room. We got to do more with this. And it's like, no, that's not what I really want. So God bless Keith and Jess, man. They were just persistent. Every six months or so, they'd reach out and ask me again, what about now? What about now? What about now? And as a period of months turned into years, I started going into screenwriting for film and television. So that by the time it finally got to a point where the play had been had been played on three different continents, um, it hadn't really it hadn't gone to Broadway. It hadn't gone to the West End. So the play was kind of like at this place where 
Um, you know, there wasn't really anything else, any place else to go with it. And I kind of went back and looked at it as a screenwriter, through a screenwriter's eyes and said, oh, now I know how, how it might be able to be adapted. And it just, the timing was perfect. So I was like, okay, well, it, we can option it now, but with the stipulation that I would love to at least take a shot at the first draft of the script. That was really what I was hoping because, you know, you're as a writer, as a screenwriter, you're used to someone else coming on later and being re and rewriting you. Yeah. <laughs> and even though I had experience, I've been on some shows, I'd sold some shows, written some scripts, you know, you're, you're a nobody. None, you know, it's like you, you just know that in order for it to get to the finish line, it's going to take someone else. I, I could not have predicted that Regina would have fallen in love with the script enough that she would have just wanted me and my script. That's Kemp Powers. Soul is now streaming on Disney Plus, while One Night in Miami is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to Variety.com and click on the Awards Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tankay, Clayton Davis, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley. We'll see you on the circuit.